This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Audiobook Club's discussion of My Struggle, Book 1, by Carl Ova Knausgaard. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the editor of the Slate Book Review. I'm here in Slate's DC Recording Studio. Joining me from New York is Slate Senior Editor David Hagland. Hey, David. Hi, Dan. And also in New York is a brand new addition to our audiobook club rotation, New York Times Book Review Editor, Parl Segel. Hey, Parl. Hi, Dan. Uh, We're so happy to have you here. Thanks for joining us. So, as always is the case with the audiobook club, we will be spoiling the various events that happen in my struggle. So, if you are a person who cares about stuff like that, you should listen after you read. If you're not a person who cares about that, you should listen right now. So... Carl Ova Knausgaard's six-part autobiographical novel, My Struggle, has sold over half a million copies in his native Norway. That's one copy for every nine adults in the country. Here in the U.S., his appearances last month in New York packed bookstores with rabid readers. He's attracted fans as starry as Zadie Smith, Jonathan Lethem, and Jeffrey Eugenides, who said he broke the sound barrier of the autobiographical novel. So today we're going to talk in the audiobook club, among other subjects, about Knausgaard's distinctive style in these books, about the relationship between Knausgaard and his family as it's portrayed, especially in book one, about the dudeness of Knausgaard and his <laughs> books, and about whether my struggle really does break new ground in the autobiographical mode. But let's start out, Parl and David, by talking about the actual experience of reading the book, which is all wrapped up in the book's style. So in review after review, critics describe reading my struggle as basically as boring but rewarding nonetheless. As James Wood put it in The New Yorker, even when I was bored, I was interested. So, you guys, Parl, even when you were bored, were you interested? Um, interested to put it mildly, right? So, I, I just to give like a little context, like I was so resistant when it came to these books because I just wanted to be special and contrarian to say, like, I don't get the hype. But I started reading it and I fell into it. And I read the first one in a day. I read the second one in, an, in another day. And the third one took me a few days. There were sections where I was just like, okay, this is a little tedious. I was never bored. I was just, and maybe this speaks to some essential voyeurism in my personality, but I was kind of riveted. I loved every detail. I got something in me slowed, and I was just able to sort of enjoy the incredibly slow, agonizing pace with which this man records every detail of every cornflake that he eats. So you fell into that pace and that tone, and you bought in completely. I'm so boring, right? I, just, no, <laughs> I, I believe that. I mean, you. so many people feel I this know. way about this book, so we'll explore this. So, David, what about you? I'm so glad that Paro felt that way, because I think we should have at least one person here who did. Clearly, many people do. Right. I liked the book overall. I might read the second one. I've only read the first. You know, my interest kind of came and went more than some people have described. I started this book a long time ago. You know, I'd I'd heard about it for a while. I picked up a copy and really loved the opening, then had to read something else. Mm. And then found myself every so often picking it up. So it took me weeks. You know, eventually I read the last few hundred pages over a, a week or so. But, you know, that was after a long time of struggling with the book. And, and for me, I don't think I was 
quite gripped in the way that people have described until the last section about his grandmother's house where his father lived, which which I had heard about and was dreading because, as, as we'll get into, you know, his father was an alcoholic and just his life went to hell. And Knausgaard's grandmother, his, his father's mother, also seems to have become an alcoholic and they were just living in filth. And I knew that eventually he went to that house. I actually found that section the most gripping and found myself most interested and engaged by the book when he was cleaning that house. So the structure of the book, as David, as you sort of allude to, is that the first half of the book, part one essentially, sort of ranges widely. And it's the idea of it is that we're there as it's being written in 2008. And he is talking about a number of different memories as well as his own current situation, the situation of being frustrated with life as a parent and trying to find room in his life for the making of art, for his aspirations of greatness that he's always had. He's also telling longish stories from his childhood, stories of growing up and playing a lot of soccer, a long story about a New Year's party and the purchasing of alcohol for that party. And several other stories that sort of intertwine and and extend and go on, mingled with these speculations, as they were described as his editor in Evan Hughes's piece in The New Republic about Knausgaard, these sort of long meditations on art or on the daily lives of Swedes or about the porn shop across the street from his apartment or just different things. And that's the first half. And then the second half of the book, part two, after some sort of throat clearing, is mostly taken up with the extended story of the death of his father and Karl Ova and his brother Ingve going to the house that his father had shared with their grandmother, which is still inhabited by that grandmother, and the long and torturous process of dealing with her and trying to clean that house, which is a complete wreck. I think my feeling about the novel ended up being very parallel to yours, David, which is that... I was not interested when I was bored. I was bored when I was bored, and I was interested when I was interested, and the delineations between those sections were very sharp for me. That second half was really compelling and moving and interesting, and I found that the accretion of detail in that section worked as a technique for getting me to live his life, as so many critics have suggested you do when you read this book. But that first half didn't do that for me at all. And I found myself constantly bored and drifting away and finding myself sort of annoyed at his need to pile meaning on top of things that I didn't think necessarily had meaning. It didn't feel like a style to me. It felt like almost desperation at times, you know, that he would see towers going up in Stockholm and talk about how for no reason at all he was desperately moved by them. That frustrated me. But, you know, I'm interested in how the mechanics of this book work, because for many readers, it seems to me that all that intense detail in the first half prepares us in some way for the intense emotion of the second half. And I can't tell if that was true for me. I mean, I read it in that order. So maybe, maybe I was so moved by that second half because of something that first half did. But is that the way this book works? And how does it work that way? I don't know if that's the way the book works. It didn't work that way for me. And, and I think for me, it's that the detail is there because in some way, we see Knausgaard has this relationship with perception and himself. And he used to have this idea when I was a child, everything was sort of swollen with this meaning and significance. And I've gotten older and I don't look at things. I think he talks about it with shoes and he talks about a particular pair of shoes he wanted. And now if you were to look at them, they would just be shoes. But when he was small, everything that was tied up, you know, and, and so powerful about them. And he wants to connect again, I think, with that ability to see things. 
with that kind of, you know, hallucinatory intensity. I think for me, all of that didn't feel incidental and it didn't feel tedious because I think, as you said, it is desperate. There was desperation. He is trying to freight everything with meaning, also in part because his father walked away from life. His father checked out in this way. His father, you know, as you said, you know, started deliberately started and very aggressively started drinking himself to death. And I think for Knausgaard, part of his relationship with the world and part of the way that he wants to look at the world in the book is to cleave to the world, is to say, like, this is what he left. And I think for me, that's why the first part was fumbling and strange. But I felt very concretely like I was trying to learn how he wanted me to look at the world with him. He explicitly makes that point on page 222. There's a section where he's on the train. It's right at the beginning of part two. And it served as me, to me at least, as sort of like a statement of purpose for this project. He's mm-hmm. sitting on the train and he talks about seeing the, the sunset as he is on a commuter train between Stockholm and Gnesta. And he says... I wasn't thinking about anything in particular, just staring at the burning red ball in the sky, and the pleasure that suffused me was so sharp and came with such intensity that it was indistinguishable from pain. What I experienced seemed to me to be of enormous significance. Enormous significance. That repetition is his. When the moment had passed, the feeling of significance did not diminish, but all of a sudden it became hard to place. Exactly what was significant? And why? A train, an industrial area, sun, mist? I recognize the feeling. It was akin to the one some works of art evoke in me. And then he goes into a discussion of different works of art that have that meaningfulness, that sort of, that desperate, as we both have said, quest for transcendent power Mm -hmm. in detail that this book seems to be attempting to create. One thing that has been strange about the reviews that I've read, you mentioned Zadie Smith and Jeff Eugenides and Jonathan Lethem, who all love the book, but none of their descriptions... (laughs) really captured for me what the experience, you know, reading it was actually like. I mean, I have no idea what it means to say that it broke the sound barrier of the autobiography. (laughs) It means nothing to me. (laughs) You know, while there are a lot of details in the book, it's still very selective. I mean, it's not like the book opens when he's 12 and he just describes every day and every hour. It's actually a relatively small portion of his life that we get, at least in book one. Uh, You mentioned that whole New Year's thing, which is basically, you know, he and a friend want to get some beer to go to this particular party, but this is complicated because they're not supposed to have it. And so there are all these steps they have to the take. The dumbest scheme yeah, to transport ex- beer over 60 pages. It's right, a exactly. Party. And that's a very deliberate choice on his part to pick that night and to describe it in as much detail as he does. There are a lot of digressions, but there's still quite a bit about him walking by the highway and then this car passes and so on. I think that he wants you to feel the empty passage of time in some way. I mean, the fact that it's a New Year's party seems sort of freighted to me. The fact that it's this kind of Sisyphean, I don't know how to say that word, but, you know, it's like this this effort like one Sisyphus takes, right? You're rolling this uh, keg up a hill or whatever. I think it's a six-pack, actually. <laughs> and then it's rolling back down, and he wants you to feel that, so he deliberately chooses those sorts of moments for much of the book, those sorts of days. And then he describes them in a mostly a fairly flat way so that he's not reveling in the texture and the detail of these things. It's merely the fact of existence or something. Well, there's an artfulness to what you suggest that is 
that to me is seems somewhat at odds with the way he's publicly talked about the book. I mean, he's talked about the book as essentially being a rejection of artifice and the attempt to just finally put down the truth exactly as it happened. And, you know, he talks of writing five or 10 or 15 or 20 or 50 pages a day over the course of writing this thing. He tried to write the entire six book cycle in a year, though he didn't quite pull that off. But like a lot of the book, I think, will feel to readers and fell to me at many points as... It's not lazy writing, obviously. There's a huge amount of just labor involved in it, but it does feel often like writing of least resistance, like it's stock full of cliches and it, it feels sort of explicitly vomited out without a filter. And so it's interesting to me that, you know, a reviewer who, like James Wood, for example, who is not a critic typically tolerant of sloppy writing, bought into this in the same way that he read it the way that you read that section, David, as artfully chosen things presented inartfully in a way that I didn't necessarily read it. Let's come back to cliche, because I'm still confused and I don't know how I feel about that. But what I will say is that, yes, there are those very artless, flat, every detail in the world flung into this chapter, into this sentence. Like all the kinds of tea. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> But then there are moments that are, there's some gorgeous writing. And he, especially he talks about the birth of his first child and she's like eyes like black lanterns and she looks like some sort of reptile out of the forest like there's lovely prose also yes and he keeps reminding me of warhol in this way like there's something deliberate going on there's an unpacking of irony there's an unpacking of effort right because you have to look at knausgaard's other two books which won prizes he was you know pretty successful for a writer in norway and he hit this block with his writing and he wanted to write about his father because he was approaching the age that his father had started, you know, drinking himself to death at, at the age of 40. And he just couldn't do it. And so according to him, so he started this book as this, as you say, like vomiting out. Because it was this emetic. Like, let me just put down as much as I can. Let me not censor myself. And if something is banal, let me make it even more banal. Let me, like, explode it with banalities mm -hmm. and see what happens. And so there's some of that. But at the same time, and I do feel like... This is something that I haven't seen reviewers do. There's a lot of formal sophistication in this book. Like, if you look at the way the book begins and the way the book ends, right? So the way the book begins, you know, Knarsgaard talking about the way that death sort of conquers the body, the way the blood moves, um, the way the body becomes an object. It's no different than the table the body is lying on. Then he goes to this sort of flashback when he was small and he heard about a fishing boat that had uh, sunk. And he imagines as a child that he sees a face in the waves. Then it cuts to Knausgaard seeing his adult face, a reflection. I think it's in a dark window or something. So it's all about these faces, it's death, and the way the book ends, right, is him looking at his father's face. And his father's been laid out his dead father's face, and he's looking at the way that the blood is coagulated and moved. So there are these echoes, there are these sorts of things that even if, you know, and I think this is, it was important to me to keep me going, to make me believe that there is, you know, that every choice in this is conscious. Every choice in this has a meaning. So maybe I was a little bit more patient because I started feeling like Sherlock Holmes, being like, why is this here? <laughs> and I need to believe that there's intent. Yeah, and it is a book largely about death and yeah. about the death oh, of his father. So I, I think there's a selectiveness on the, on the level of the incidents he chooses to describe and, and how it, yeah, and also yeah. framing and structure. I mean, it's possible that there are whole passages and, and whole sections even that were vomited out. Maybe they weren't changed. And sometimes the writing does feel that way. It's sort of, you know, why is he narrating the whole process of making this tea? Although, again, that's the passage of time and the kind of you're waiting to... So even that, I think there's a deliberateness perhaps. But it does feel strangely inartful. And yet overall, at least in this first volume, it's, which is the only one that I've read, 
it does feel like there is this overall structure. And so my inclination, Dan, to get back to your much earlier question about whether the power of the second section hinges on the first is that it does, because we have been thinking about death. He has described his father, who is this, you know, distant, forbidding figure. And then when we move to his death, we see the narrator, Knausgaard, you know, start to sob uncontrollably at various times. He's embarrassed. He's he's angry. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he doesn't seem to make a huge effort to understand his father or to forgive him. He instead lets you kind of just feel that anger and revel in that anger. I wanted to bring up one other subject that I haven't seen discussed in many reviews, and I, I don't know if it's important or interesting, but this first volume's relationship to alcohol and alcoholism. Because the other thing about that New Year's party story is that it's it's all about getting beer, yeah. right? And he describes his own relationship to drinking a little bit, you know, that he would drink quite a lot sometimes. Mm-hmm. But he does not present himself as an alcoholic or as having some kind of larger drinking problem. But that is what killed his father and has seems to have reduced his grandmother to just, you know, a, a total mess. But he's got that great quote, right? As a, as a kid, he says, alcohol was good for me. I found that just so tender and right. You know, and it took this incredibly sensitive, vulnerable kid out of himself. It gave him, you know, it keeps coming back. And it seems to be important in the way that he talks about art and music. Anything that sort of he calls this like quality of boundlessness and he's suspicious of words. I think, I think it's in this one where he talks about misology, right? His fear of words, his fear of language. When you look at that, like somebody who has that quality, that distrust, combined with this outsized love for music, art, alcohol, anything that takes him out of his body, it becomes especially interesting that he traffics in cliches and flatness of language the way that he's doing. Yeah. In a way that I can't really parse yet, but it's all... It's all in there. Well, so there's this one section yeah. of the book on page 25, actually, that you, David and Pearl, you'll, Pearl, you both have made me think of which sort of brings all of this together in a extremely artful package, I must say, especially when you read it in the context of the response to this book in Norway and elsewhere. It starts out at the bottom of page 25, and he says, I don't get anything out of socializing anyway. I never say what I really think, what I really mean, but always more or less agree with whomever I'm talking to at the time, pretend that what they say of interest to me, except when I'm drinking. In which case, more often than not, I go too far the other way and wake up to the fear of having overstepped the mark. This has become more pronounced over the years and can now last for weeks. When I drink, I also have blackouts and completely lose control of my actions, which are generally desperate and stupid, but also on occasion desperate and dangerous. That is why I no longer drink. I do not want anyone to get close to me. I do not want anyone to see me. And this is the way things have developed. No one gets close and no one sees me. This is what must have engraved itself in my face. This is what must have made it so stiff and mask-like and almost impossible to associate with myself whenever I happen to catch a glimpse of it in a shop window. So there's that face in the window, Parl, that you Mm -hmm. mentioned, echoing the face in the waves. And there's a sense from this section, at least, that drinking has been replaced in his life by writing this novel, right? This novel is now the thing that makes him go too far the other way, that makes him overstep the mark. This novel is the thing that that makes everyone angry at him, that embarrasses him in public. So he's like escaped, potentially at least, the disease of his father's alcoholism, but he's replaced it with something else that Karlova Knausgaard at least has been free in saying has ruined his life possibly just as much as drinking ruined his own dad's. 
So I want to talk about his father a little bit because that relationship is really interesting, but it's one that I found a little bit frustrating over the course of the book. And Parl, you can maybe tell us how much more book three goes into it because book three is explicitly just about his childhood, right? Right. Is it horrible to say that? I didn't think his dad seemed so bad. No, I'm with you. So he seemed like a little distant, and eventually he became a horrible drunk, and there was a hint of maybe that there was some abuse with the mom, and Ingve definitely hated him. But mostly, it seemed to me in this book, like, Karl Ovo is just a super oversensitive kid, and his dad, like, like leaves him shrimp in the fridge and 500 kroner to spend, and he <laughs> cries when he listens to music, and he just yeah. seemed like a sensitive guy and maybe in the wrong life. I'm with you, right? Because it's just like he keeps calling him this monster, and even the reviews, I think I think Dwight Garner called him, like, one of literature's indelible bad dads. But he's it's like not! Uh. Right? So, like, you see all this, like, monster, but you see no evidence of monstrosity. And I kept reading it being like, I just was raised by Indian parents. I don't know what, (laughs) you know, strict parenting is. But then you get to book three and you do see a little bit more of the kind of just menacing presence he was, the kind of, there was a certain degree of emotional sadism. He enjoys humiliating his son. You see that a little bit more. I mean, this has been like something that I've struggled with and like, I don't know if we'll see more because he, he is also very artful in withholding information, right? Right. Like, we do get the sense that we don't see it here, but we will see it. As with the first one, we know his first marriage ended, but we're not sure exactly what happened, you know, but we know it's coming. So he, there's a reason, right? Like, these books are suspenseful. He's good at that. But with the dad, I don't know. I have to see more. I saw a little bit more in book three, but nothing that convinced me of this, you know, to sort of earn this sort of animus. I mean, man, it's a real long game to play as an author, right? <laughs> to say, I mean, you're right that he is like leaving a lot of this stuff on the table. I mean, even like yeah. stuff with Ingve, his brother, like that he, he's an interesting character who's not dealt with that comprehensively in this book. And I found that frustrating, but I guess, I guess maybe I've got five more books or maybe he's going to deal with Ingve more. I don't know. This gets to a larger issue with the, with the books, I think, that didn't, bother me enormously uh, with this one, but from what I gather, and, and Pearl, you can correct me if if, if uh, you disagree, but, uh, it, you know, I think is, is true of the rest, which is that he's not he's not that interested in, in other people, at least as in these books, as a writer in the way that we expect writers to be. He doesn't seem devoted to creating other characters. He's not projecting himself into the minds of other people in the way that we generally expect novelists to do. And the one sort of attempted a Knausgaard takedown, I think, in, in the American reviews is a piece that ran in the nation by William Derisovich, and he gives him a really hard time for this. Um, Christian Lorenzen, writing in Slate, also brings it up, but, but, but defends him in some way, sees this as sort of part of the structure of the book and maybe even part of its power, that you are, that you are trapped in this narrator's head that he's not venturing outside of it really. Um, and yeah, that, I, yeah. so I don't, I wouldn't expect reading more to ever really understand Ingve or his father a great deal more, or at least in the way that one comes to understand fictional characters usually. Yeah, and I found that frustrating. Like, I, you know, it makes sense for the purposes of this novel and maybe for the purposes of the entire series for the father to be something of a cipher, right? To be a mystery. It doesn't make sense for Ingve to be a mystery. It doesn't make sense for this narrator of this novel or not a novel or whatever it is that the American publisher, in fact, has been very determinant not to 
describe it as a novel the way it's described, who it was described in the original Norwegian books. It doesn't make sense for the narrator of this book to not make a real attempt to get inside the head and understand the needs and wants and dreams of a character who is as who's on the face of it as potentially interesting as Ingve. And you're right, David, that that's not something that the book concerns itself with. And it's it's actually, I, I think we have like a fair indication that it's not going to happen. In, in interviews, he said that the fallout from exposing certain members of his family was so great that he says that in, in volumes three to six, he, he feels that they're weaker because he was holding, he was pulling his punches. He couldn't write about his mother the way that he wrote about his father, right? And the mother is especially troubling for me. I think she's the one who just, she gets these very flat lines. She's like the sort of figure of just general benign right. benevolence. She's not really involved. In book two and book three, you see a little bit like, you know, she should stand up for him, but she's very, he, he lets her off very easily. Um, I do see with the wife, with, with Linda, his second wife, uh, he's, he's curious about her and he does try to enter her world and I, I think a little bit more than he does with the father and the, and the mother. And with the children later on, there is some effort to sort of, albeit gingerly because they're all so small, to sort of discuss who they are as people, like what he sees, like their relationships, to power their relationships to him, to each other. Um, that's true with Linda. That section about where she is pregnant and he is talking about the fear that she feels and the way that she has sort of planned out her birth and things like that. That section yeah. did give me that sense of an actual, of a writerly intelligence, a novelist's intelligence at play in another character's head. Yeah. But I think one of the reasons, and like people keep talking about identification, right? So you get this chance while reading this book to, to live in the mind of somebody else. And as I was reading this, and I was like, yeah, you, you, have to, you have to talk about the solipsism of this character, you know? Where everybody else is kind of interchangeable. And he has these even run-ins with strangers that are very minutely detailed. But how much do we attach to them? We know the stranger is never coming back. We know that right. they're not going to matter. We know right. that his psyche is what matters. So then I started thinking about, is this, is this actually, is he actually trying to describe what it's like to live in a mind where, generally speaking, or his mind, where he just doesn't, you know, um, perform that kind of imaginative work? Um, or that most people is, don't. I mean, is it part of an argument that, in fact, most of us don't, that, that most of us started, live in our minds? Yeah, then I had a very uncomfortable like, sort of discussion with myself about my own narcissism. <laughs> and well, then, I had a drink. And, uh, <laughs> that's strange that he would have such appeal for novelists in particular, right. who, at least in this country, do seem to have responded to his work in a you know extremely enthusiastic way. Yeah. And one would think these are people who are rare in that they do spend their time thinking outside of themselves. Maybe it was a relief or somehow yeah. exciting to be reading a book that didn't even bother and didn't try and was in a sense... I mean, I do think he does... We talked about the deliberateness and the selectiveness, but there are at least kinds of artifice mm -hmm. that he jettisons. Mm -hmm. And this may be one of them, that when you're creating characters who are not you, you're making them out of experiences that are not your own. And some people do that marvelously, but it is artifice. That's, that's what it is. And so maybe this writer who doesn't even bother, maybe there's something exciting for a writer about yeah, and, that. And, and he is in a tradition, right? He's in the tradition of Dostoevsky, who he writes about a lot, and Newt Hamsun, and this idea of the man alone, the man tormented, you know? And that doesn't, you know, and everybody else is the sort of cipher, as you said, David. So I think that there is a, a healthy tradition of these kinds of books. I think it's just surprising because we do, we, we are, we're uncomfortable how to characterize it. Isn't this a memoir? Aren't these people you love? Aren't these people that you would ordinarily be um, even just slightly curious about? So. Right. right. And that distinction, you know, you alluded to it earlier, Dan, I think it is 
important as well, the fact that I, mean, I think we read this mostly as nonfiction. Yeah. Right? I mean, even though... They've got his face staring at us out of the goddamn cover, for right. God's sake. Well, <laughs> I like the resentment in your voice there, <laughs> He's staring at me right now. <laughs> But he's so, he's so handsome, Dan. He's, he's really <laughs> handsome. It's true, but he's so still, handsome. he's staring into my soul. You didn't understand my novel. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> Let's keep that. <laughs> you know, so Katie Roy, if you wrote this piece for Slate, wondering about how people would respond to this book if he was a woman. It's a thought experiment. He's not a woman, but it's true that this would probably be a different book if he was, and that people would respond to it differently if it was by a woman. And also there's the question of his Scandinavianness, And just, you know, there was actually Christian Lorenzen, who reviewed the book for Slate, made this point to me that, you know, we had, there was the Bolaño kind of craze, right. you know, in the last decade and the Murakami craze in the decade before that. And, and maybe there is a way in which, you know, some sort of writer from elsewhere gets celebrated. We'll and... import just one. Yes, exactly. Right. One. Position's right. been filled. We had Piketty this year, too, the glamorous sort of, you know, expat writer. Right. Yeah. Apparently, they don't care about Karl of Knausgaard in France, by the way. They find oh, him very pedestrian. <laughs> They're just like, oh, an- another writer... His secrets aren't nearly as surprising as like all the anal sex that our writers have in their That's in their right. That's crazy right. Colette memoirs. Colette slept with her stepson, you know. So. Right. Also, he doesn't really write about sex. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the other thing in terms of how you know this idea that he is a breaking taboos or being so confessional or revealing. It's a specific kind of confession. I mean, the way he goes into the shit and the piss and everything in the in his grandmother's house that was. Um, I mean, just how filthy it was. That's gruesome and not the kind of thing that I'm at least accustomed to reading. But he doesn't talk about his sex life. He doesn't talk about, you know, kind of fantasizing as a teenager, kind of the the things he might have been, you know, felt ashamed of. That does not come up. You know, again, I, I come back to this idea that he's that he's focused more on things that are banal and things that have to do with death uh, rather than things that are just just private. It's not privacy or secrecy that inherently interests him necessarily. So I want to go back to that Katie Royfe piece that you alluded to, David. I I found that piece really interesting and the argument behind it really interesting. It's been received in various ways by various readers. A lot of people took real offense at sort of the, basically the thought experiment nature of it. Other people really related to it. But so just for our listeners who maybe haven't read it, Katie Royfe in a Slate Double X piece earlier this week asserts that basically if my struggle had been written by, she says, by Carla Olivia Krauss of Brooklyn, then no one would care about it. And in fact, more than that, the readers would be annoyed at a woman thinking that a whole series of six books about like such traditionally feminine subjects as domestic life were important or meaningful enough to be published. They would view that as like an act of hubris as opposed to viewing it as a heroic work in the way that they have this one, which is written by this handsome, rugged gent. And I have to admit that so on the subject of domesticity and dadness, which much of this book and much of other books revolve around, you know, as much as I enjoyed seeing some of my own concerns and issues about being a dad mirrored in the book, and there's a passage I actually want to read, which I think is quite amazing, really, and really reflects much of my experience about being a parent. It's on page 31. He's talking about his daughter, who's two. As I write, I'm filled with tenderness for her, but this is on paper. In reality, when it really counts, and she is standing there in front of me, so early in the morning that the streets outside are still and not a sound can be heard in the house, she, raring to start a new day, I, summoning the will to get to my feet, putting on yesterday's clothes and following her into the kitchen where the promised blueberry-flavored milk and the sugar-free muesli await her, it is not tenderness I feel. 
And if she goes beyond my limits, such as when she pesters and pesters me for a film, or tries to get into the room where John is sleeping, in short, every time she refuses to take no for an answer but drags things out ad infinitum, it is not uncommon for my irritation to mutate into anger. And when I then speak harshly to her, and her tears flow and she bows her head and slinks off with slumped shoulders, I feel it serves her right. Not until the evening, when they are asleep, and I am sitting wondering what I am really doing, is there any room for the insight that she is only two years old. But by them, I am on the outside looking in. Inside, I don't have a chance. That section really resonated for me, but it's a section that if it, you know, appeared in a novel by, or a memoir by a female writer, you wouldn't necessarily blink an eye at it. I thought that the book as a whole and the way that the book dealt with that compared really poorly for example, to something like Department of Speculation, Jenny Ophel's mm. book, which we talked about on the audiobook club a few months ago, and which is concerned with many of the very same issues as, say, the first half of My Struggle, book one. The tension between art and the drudgery of child rearing, the anxiety of a modern marriage. And so that book, to me, felt like a really great artful distillation of like the really shaggy, often boring first 250 pages of My Struggle. And it certainly, while it has been acclaimed, certainly has gotten nothing like the acclaim that this book has gotten, in part for how much it focuses on the dadness of it and the dudeness of it. What did you guys think of Katie Royfe's piece? And did you think that there's something to this notion that this book reads different if it's written by a woman? Um, as the resident woman. Uh, <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that, I mean, it's it's... She's right. I mean, even though there there have been women that have tried to do things like this, right? Like, so Rachel Cusk wrote, a, right. a, I think, two books about, one was about having children, a life's work, which is this great, really bitterly funny, frank look at having children and wanting to be a writer and, and just sort of all sorts of maternal ambivalence. And and it was greeted with a lot of... Um, People thought she was a real bitch. Yeah, they thought she was a bad mom and yeah. a bad person. And they were very mean. And uh, And then she wrote another book... The name's, I'm forgetting the name, but it's about the dissolution of her marriage. And again, you know, just sort of this idea of a woman speaking, a woman talking about her intimate sort of life. And it was just very sort of nasty conversations. And I'm reminded a little bit, David, you wrote a really, really good review of Sheila Hetty's book when it came out for the book review. And I remember it, right? Because so many of the other reviews, and Sheila Hetty again, like this is not, the book is like, uh, how should a person be? You know, it was fiction, but the, you know, her, her the author's name was Sheila. That it, it talked a lot about like making art. There were characters uh, named after her friends. There are a lot of identifiable details, and a lot of the conversations about that book sort of got mired in narcissism and self-involvement. And uh, you don't really see people talking about Knausgaard that way. I think the one review in the Nation made a point. You know that there's too much navel gazing, but generally speaking, there's an ability or an interest that people have in universalizing men's experiences that they right. don't do for women, right? So, like, I can read Knausgaard, and I'm the furthest thing. I'm a very small, very shabby, you know, Indian person in the world. And yet I feel like I can read this book by this, you know, Norwegian white Viking and, like, feel completely, you know, <laughs> see like myself in it four. in my struggle. He's 6'4", this guy. <laughs> I, and I, the hair. And the I hair. Know, the and hair. The, you know, but you, you, you can just lose yourself. And it's like Proust, right? But then... You know, you don't see people willing to do that with Colette or with the Sheila Hedys of the world or Simone de Beauvoir, women who've written incredibly raw, self-revealing things. I agree with Rafi, and I actually didn't really see any of the backlash. What were the criticisms? I'm speaking broadly about people on Twitter sniping at it, basically. And okay. I think some of that has to do with often the dismissal of things that Katie Royfe writes sure. because they, the people have not liked previous things she's written. In fact, one critic I like very much Michelle Dean, who agreed with Katie Royfe's piece, I think 
basically uh-huh. she was subtweeting it with a comment about even a stopped clock being right twice a day. But I did see a lot of response, especially from guys, basically saying like, oh, well, it wasn't written by a woman. This is the total hypothetical. It doesn't matter. And no, this is not why I like Karl of I would like him even if he didn't have a penis, Katie Wifey. <sighs> and it just seemed like a lot of sort of knee-jerk response to me from people on Twitter to a point wow. that I thought was actually probably right. Well, and I think even if you are unwilling to indulge in the speculative aspect of that thought experiment, I think it does highlight the extent to which this is the experience of a man specifically. Yeah. And that this is a book about male experience and that the way that he wrestles with parenthood and family life and his sense of destiny or vocation or whatever it is as a writer is the way that a man, I think, is maybe more likely to think about those things as there's a certain entitlement almost that comes from feeling like, wait, I'm supposed to be doing these great things. And I think women typically are brought up to feel like, oh, no, you're supposed to be a mother. And, and, you know, the sense of responsibility is bred into us differently. So his experience is, I think, specifically male. And we we should recognize that. Mm. And there's a universal quality as well as Mm. there would be if it was by a woman, Mm. even if it wouldn't be received that way. But there is also a way in which he's writing specifically from a male perspective. Violently right? from a male perspective, right? He writes that I'm a 19th century man in this sort of like Scandinavian world, which insists on this political correctness and this gender neutrality and all of this. And, you know, and I think one of the interesting things is going to be Knausgaard's political leanings. <laughs> Once you get into two and three, you know, he, he really enjoys, as Mishima, he really enjoys some pretty reactionary guys and has a lot of, you know, quibbles with the welfare state in general and with this fantasy, as he thinks, you know, the Scandinavian fantasy that men and women are the same. So, yeah, I agree. It's very much from a male perspective. But the thing is, is that we're conditioned to read differently, right? Like women are conditioned, I think, and people of color, for that matter, are conditioned to read much more widely and be able to slip into books and sort of find themselves or whatever refraction of themselves is possible. Since Paro mentioned politics, I think we should talk about the title of the book yeah, at least a little bit because obviously it's also the title of Hitler's famous Mein Kampf and that's even more clear in the Norwegian, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but it's something like Min Kamp, it's M-I-N-K-A-M-P in, in Norwegian. And as I understand it, when it was translated into German, they changed the title because yeah. they were not... Oh, really? I and, believe and I For the UK there. edition too, oh, they wow. just called it like My Father's Death or something. <laughs> right. And then, you know, they were not willing to publish a book called Mein Kampf in Germany. (laughs) But, you know, that's not coincidence. I mean, the story is that it was sort of began as a whim or kind of on a dare. But there's an interesting piece by Evan Hughes that ran on the New Yorker's website. As you mentioned, Dan, he profiled Kanaskar for the New Republic. And then he wrote this follow-up about the title and how we shouldn't take it as purely a provocation I mean, he obviously is not a Nazi and not anti-Semitic. But Hamsun, who I think uh, you mentioned, Parul, earlier, did have, you know... A little bit of the Nazi there. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he got a touch of the Nazi. Yeah. And Knausgaard seems to be kind of grappling with that in some way and also deliberately sort of provoking his readers in some fashion. And the last volume apparently has 400 pages all about Hitler that right. people have described as sort of unsatisfying. In... Evans' profile in the New Republic, there's this line from Knausgaard's Norwegian editor, Geir Gullikson, who says that the title works because it's part of, quote, this feeling of stupidity, this feeling of going too far that the book represents and epitomizes. And I sort of buy that, but there is also this sense 
going back to several things we've talked about, right, there is obviously a grandioseness to it. And if Hitler had never called his book Mein Kampf, it would still be grandiose to call this book Mein Kampf. But it wouldn't have the same sort of ironic undercurrent that he benefits from simply through that wink at this historical work, right? He, Because of Hitler's book, he can also say, oh, well, obviously I don't mean it. But he also really does mean it. He really means that this is his struggle. And I think that there's also something aggressive in the way that this is positioned at Norwegians. You know, he said in an interview, I think it was in the LARB, that when his grandparents died, he discovered a copy of Mein Kampf in their living room. And he started talking about how Mein Kampf was read all over Europe, and people liked it. They're like, oh, he starts, Hitler starts screaming in one part, but the rest of it, you know, it makes solid sense. And it, it was a book that people, according to Knausgaard, read and liked. And he sort of talked about copies of Mein Kampf that Norwegians had and the fact that the Germans were in Norway for five years, right? And he was just sort of talking about, like, we have this story that we tell ourselves in Norway about heroic resistance. And he's like, but no, we were collaborators. And like, this is something that is sort of very conveniently fallen out of, you know, public knowledge. And right. I think there's, there's something about, and these ideas that he has about purity, collaboration, the individual, right? So, I mean, whether or not he takes on this thematically, like this is very much the weather in these books. Right. In fact, that very charged section with the grandma where she becomes clear for several days has been jonesing for a drink <sighs> and they finally get drunk with her and she finally opens up and starts telling stories. Isn't that when she tells the story of how there were like these nice Germans who lived near them during the occupation. And when the Germans left, they were like, oh, we have a bunch of stuff we can't take with us. We'll leave it up on a cliff for you. And that's how they got a bunch of like really nice things mm. was by the, them getting them from the Germans who got them from God knows where. Including some very fine drinks, I think she mentioned. <laughs> so I also found that pretty fascinating. And I will be interested to see if Knausgaard mania continues, how, for example, that long section in the sixth book what the response is to that and what the response is in general to his politics and the politics of the books as we go on. So I think the last sort of big thing that I want to talk about, I mean, just sort of sum it all up is does the book really break new ground in autobiographical writing? But really the, what I'm really asking is why this book now, why do people latch onto this? Why has it gotten the profile that it is? Is it just that he's Norwegian and he's the other and he's handsome, so he's our new Murakami and our new Bolaño? Or is it because he's a guy? Is it because of those piercing eyes staring at me from the paperback edition? Is it, but also, is it less about this book and more about the kinds of books that other people are writing? Mm. Are we responding to some lack in our current literature or a surplus of too many well-drawn characters in our current literature? Like, what is causing this, do you guys think? Unlike Derisowicz in, in The Nation, who's who's really savage about this, I take uh, people's enjoyment, including yours, mm -hmm. at face value. I think people really are, there is something about the reading experience that some American readers just are connecting with in some way, maybe in, in various ways. It is different, right? It doesn't feel like other books. And there is something that's exciting about that. And if you're someone who, you know, especially I think someone who reads a lot and maybe gets, you know, reads a lot of fiction, reads a lot of memoir, gets acquainted with the kinds of things people tend to do even well, you know, the, the certain, you know, techniques that people use and so on. There is something riveting about seeing a writer not do those things. 
And I think also for writers in particular, there is, I imagine, a response to the utter confidence, wherever it comes from, <laughs> to just, yes, I am going to write six volumes about the minutiae of my life, and I don't care that people might not think that's important or, you know, might think, I think Teresa even says at one point, like, who does he think he is? <laughs> right. You know, he doesn't care that you don't think he's important enough. And I think there is a way in which I think a writer, you know, there's a doubt that you feel, oh, who am I to say this? You know, oh, will anyone care? And he just, he just seems to throw that away. There's an implicit narcissism to the act of writing a novel, no matter what, right? There's the presumptuous sense that the things that you are writing matter enough to be put down on paper and then that they matter enough to be published in a book and then that they matter enough for someone to spend money on them and then actually to spend hours reading them. And so I do agree with you, David, that I think that writers in particular are attracted to the almost cartoonish confidence manifest in these books that it gives them, I think, the sense, oh, it works in a couple ways. One is even if you're never going to write a book like this, it gives you a certain sense of inspiration to see a writer being so bold with something so potentially foolhardy. But also on the other, as a writer, I think it might also give you a sense of, oh, well, at least what I'm doing isn't this bananas. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm just writing a novel with characters and a story. Like, so I bet people will like that. Guys are so cynical. <laughs> to which I would add, I really do think that the, the reason that the books are catching on, I just think that like if you like them, if they get to you in the way that they got to me, reading them is completely an unmooring, disorienting, very confusing experience. It was more absorbing. Like I wanted to be in the book mm -hmm. and not in real life. And I haven't really felt that since I was small, right? Like, Dan, you know how your kids love, you know, you, you, you have like you, I, I see, you know, stalk you a little bit on Facebook, but your, your kids are reading all the time and the way, like that kind of absorption, yeah. right? I haven't felt that. And I, I, it was very interesting to sort of like not be tempted by my phone, not be tempted by anything and want to live in that sort of world. And I do think writers are drawn to him because he flouts all the rules. And I think Christian Lorenzen brought this up. Anything that you're taught not to do, he does to such a degree, to such a scope that it's absolutely fascinating. And somehow, again, if you like it, the thing works. And it's very interesting to try to figure out technically how that's happening. And again, as David pointed out, the reviews haven't really explained that. You know, and if I was and I was sitting down and sort of going through my notes, and that's what I, I just started writing and trying to figure out how one chapter hooks into another, how one description becomes because there's something happening that keeps at least people like me so wrapped. The other reason I have to say cynically a little bit why I think this book is catching on is that there's a romance about him and his story right. that I think a lot of us who read, you know, write well, what is the writer? The writer teaches in a nice MFA program and you know it's a domesticated creature. It's a pet, it's a cat. And then you have this like, sort of wild man from Norway who's burned all his bridges, you know. I mean, true, he lives in a very cushy welfare state where nobody <laughs> works. Have you noticed? Nobody has a day job. And he's like, oh, I have to get back to my kids because my wife is like taking this endless class. Everybody's so comfortable. But like there is this element of risk. There is a man. And I think it's important that it's a man alone against society, against his family. And writing as this labor, writing shown to be something difficult, that it's not a feat. You know, it's not stylish, but it's just like it's words and lots of them. And the books are heavy and, you know. Right. He's carving them. He's carving his comp out of granite. You know? Right. So I think that like this does tie into something that I think some people, you know, missed. I don't know. You know, it's been interesting to watch that sort of marketing happen and, and watching it actually resonate with some people. And I do also think it's interesting, you know, that the end result of it, as, 
as has famously been written about all over the place, that the end of book six is him saying, basically, I'm happy to say that I'm no longer a writer with a complete renunciation of everything. Although, as Evan Hughes notes in his New Republic profile, he's, in fact, working on a new novel. So that's totally not in the My Struggle mode. That's more in the mode of his earlier books, a sort of magical realist and fantastical and Borgesian. But to go back to what you were saying before, Parle, I agree with David that I don't doubt the pleasure that people are getting from this, and I don't doubt that you became immersed in the book this way, and I don't doubt that that is really what is driving a lot of the passion for this. And as you were saying that, I was going back through my notes and looking at Zadie Smith's piece touching on the book in the New York Review of Books, where she said basically the identical thing. She said she was writing about the level of detail in my struggle. And she says, every detail is put down without apparent vanity or decoration as if the writing and the living are happening simultaneously. There shouldn't be anything remarkable about any of it, except for the fact that it immerses you totally. You live his life with him. And that is a primal reading experience that we definitely do not have that often as adults. And just because I only had it in parts of this book does not negate the power that it had over me when I was reading those parts, even though it wasn't there for me in more parts of the book than it was there for me. When it was there, it was really, really powerful. To be also a little bit cynical about the power of Knausgaard, does some of it have to do with the Fuhrer? Like, does it make it, not Der Fuhrer, sorry, but the Fuhrer that took place in Norway when this when these books came out, right? So every story about these books talks about everyone got so angry and his father's family threatened him. And that's why it seems his father's name, in fact, doesn't appear in the books because of threats from his father's family and ruined his life. And his first wife did a whole radio show that he participated in about how bad it was for her. And his his second wife even was really unpleasantly surprised by some of the stuff he wrote about her. And now he's retreated from writing. Yeah, she had like a breakdown. And it certainly is easier to get interested in a book in the first place when you know that it's a huge scandal somewhere, even if it's somewhere that I've never been, like Norway. And so to what extent is that, like, self-perpetuating? Like, is that, like, a lesson to future writers of great books in other countries that, if possible, you should try to get an entire nation up in arms at you because then you might become an international literary success? (laughs) Is that too mean? I mean, obviously he didn't do it on purpose, although sort of he did it on purpose. He says, well, I had the choice not to say all these things. I had the chance to take it all back before the books were published, but I didn't. It may help, you know, get someone to open the book, but these are pretty long books. So the thing is, <laughs> I don't know how many people can read. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm a slow reader, but I, you know, you can't, I don't know how many people can read 400 pages purely on the strength of, you know, distant scandal. You can't hate read 440 pages is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I do think that there's, and I was sort of hitting, getting at this before, but maybe I can say it a little bit more clearly, that I think there's an anxiety about fiction for people who love fiction, who take it seriously, people who write fiction. There's a sense that it's not important. And so, again, I do think it matters that the fictional status of this is sort of unclear, that he says he made stuff up, uh, that it's called a novel in Norway, but that we take it basically as nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And yet, nonfiction that doesn't present itself as being important because of his story, it's not as though he thinks that or implies that, you know, it's not a, a recovery memoir, right? Even though you mentioned before that he said he doesn't drink, 
and that his, this is partly the story of the son of an alcoholic, it's not presented as the story of the son of an alcoholic. It's not a million little pieces, for example. Yeah. And also the fact that the that the writing is not kind of fine. He's not making the case for the book on the quality of the sentences. It's purely as writing, as the record of a life. This is important. Writing is important. You know, getting things down in this way. Books are important. Here they are. They must be important because they're really long and there are six of them. And people take them seriously. And I think that there is a way in which that speaks to people. That, oh, you know what? Writing is important and literature is important. Mm -hmm. And I like that and I, I want to be a part of that. And I also think one like really good measure of a book tends to be like the quality of the questions it raises. Yeah. And I think that the questions this book, like even just today, right? Like the questions that we've been asking, is it good? You know, what makes a prose style good or effective? Is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? You know, like, we're asking interesting questions about this book more than the usual, like, is this character likable or not likable, right? right. Like, it's like, I, I just Not like likable. Comp- the answer is not likable. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. He's handsome. But so um, handsome. So handsome. But so I really, I think that this is something that's made me very happy. And like, even just, you know, preparing for today and just sort of reading all of these pieces, you know, sort of like the centrifugal reading, of, you know, like all the reviews and the essays. And it just seems to be interesting and deep and unresolved and unresolvable in a way that I like. You're absolutely right. And there's so much to talk about. There's so many things on my notes that we didn't even get to, even though this is now officially the longest audiobook club of all time. Oh, no. And so that is a great testament to the cultural quality of the work. Like, whether you love this book or don't love it or get annoyed by it as a cultural object and as an advancement of the argument that we are forever having about literature and what its uses and value are... This is an important book. It's an important series. And the pleasure that everyone can take in arguing about it is a measure in many ways of that importance. And so I think that's worth thinking about, maybe even above all else, you know. Even if this book is not important 100 years from now, the way that the culture for this brief period talked about it and the way that books are going to respond to it for the next 30 years uh, do matter. And even if I myself am not looking forward to the wave of (laughs) Canals Guardian inspired novels in the future, like I do think that that's going to matter. It's going to make a difference. And I think that that is fun and interesting and and part of the whole reason that we love books, not just for the experience of being lost in them, but for the experience of them thinking about them and talking about them afterwards. And it has been a great pleasure talking with you guys about this book. Thank you so much for joining me, David and Parl. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. A program note. Our next audiobook club selection is Roz Chast's Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? A comics memoir with some surprising overlap with My Struggle, book one. It's by the longtime New Yorker cartoonist, and it's the story of her parents, George and Elizabeth, their declining health, and Chast's battle to care for them through their deaths. Read it and join us for our discussion on August 8th. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com slash books. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the audiobook club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. That helps other people discover the show. If you leave a comment or a rating, that also helps other people discover the show. You just have to search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store. Please tell your friends about the Audiobook Club. And uh, please, once again, subscribe if you're a listener. Our producer is Abdul Rufus. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For David Hagland and Carl Segel, I'm Dan Coyce. Thanks for listening.